stand together for the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading from Acts chapter 12, beginning at verse 5, through to chapter 13, verse 3. Our verses of focus will be from 18 to 24 in chapter 12. The title of today's sermon is, Be Wise, O Kings, Lest You Perish in the Way. Please listen carefully, because this is God's holy and infallible Word. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and the light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and the second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, You are beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, It is his angel. Now Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Then, as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea, and he stayed there. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. But they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus the king's personal aide, their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and he gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of God and not of a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God grew and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. 
Then, having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. And thus ends the reading of God's Word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. Prophet David wrote, by the inspiration of the Spirit, in Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord, that is the Father, said to my Lord, that is Jesus Christ, His beloved Son, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Father has been placing the enemies of Jesus under His feet. In Hebrews 2, Excuse me, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 through 27, we hear these words written by the Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. So death is an enemy an enemy of Jesus, an enemy of God. For He has put all things under His feet. But when He says all things are put under Him, it is evident that He who put all things under Him is accepted. So the last enemy that the Father, out of love for His Son, honoring His risen, reigning Son, the last enemy that He will place under the feet of His Son is death. Hebrews 2.14 tells us that though that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death. So Jesus, through his death, he might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. And those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. He released them through his death. So what does this tell us? Jesus was under the power of death. Jesus was under that enemy. That enemy was his master. The devil held the power of death at that time. Jesus was under the power of death. The Father raised him from the dead, released him from the power of death. Ephesians 1, 19 and 20, What is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he, that's the Father, raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The Father delivered his beloved Son out of the power of death. So I think we can say that not only is death the last enemy to be defeated, but death was the first enemy the Father vanquished through the conquest of death when he raised his Son from the dead. And we can say that at that time, the Father placed death under the feet of Jesus. And that continued conquest of death is underway since then. Revelation 1.18 tells us the ascended Christ speaking to John in his vision. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. The ascended Christ has been made Lord over Hades, and he has been made Lord over death. Jesus is the master of death. And the Father continues to lift up his beloved Son to this very day. 
The rulers of Midian took counsel together and set themselves against the Lord and against his people, hatching harassing schemes to seduce God's people away from the Lord. This is Numbers 25, what did God do? The Midian, Midianites were destroyed, perish, perishing in the way. It's Numbers 31. Canaanite soldier Sisera set himself and his army against the Lord and his people also. With army destroyed, fleeing, Sisera perished in the way under the tent peg in the hand of wise woman Jael. And Jabin, Sisera's king, was also destroyed. Judges 4. There's a theme here. Do you see it? Later, princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, set themselves against the Lord and his people, and they, you guessed it, perished in the way. Heads removed and brought to Gideon. Judges 7. And the kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, not just the princes, but the kings, continued, in spite of this, to set themselves against the Lord and his people, and they too perished in the way. All those who hate God and rise up and make a tumult against him and his people, who set themselves against God and against his anointed, will face this same end if they do not repent, kiss the Son, and worship him as they serve as political rulers. We saw the most, perhaps, wondrous example of this, in the total destruction of Pharaoh and his army at the Red Sea today in our reading, did we not? What did Pharaoh do? He set himself against the Lord and against his people, and what happened to him? He perished in the way. And today's text, brothers and sisters, is another example of this reality. And we need to get this into our heads. This is what God does to people who set themselves up against him. God does not change. All rebellious political rulers everywhere are hereby warned in this text and by the scriptures. And they're not being warned by men who have no power. We have no power. They're warned by God himself. By God the Father himself who raised up his beloved son from the dead and seated him at his right hand, Ephesians 1.20. The resurrection and the reign of Christ are always connected, his wounds yet visible above. And they are warned to kiss the Son, to confess their sins, to worship Christ with trembling as they submit to him as the rightful king of kings. God the Father, brothers and sisters, He loves His crucified, resurrected, and reigning Son. And the Father will lift up the name of Jesus Christ. He's been placed over every name, and He is accomplishing that outcome in the earth, that the name of His Son, His beloved Son, will be over every name. And all those who dare insult the Son are in jeopardy of the Father's wrath. Think of the Father and His love for His Son. Think of this. This is the heartbeat of today's sermon. God the Father loves His beloved Son. Herod learned this the hard way. Herod learned this the hard way. Do you understand this? Do not get in between the Father and His Son and His people. Do your prayers rise up to the Father crying out according to His love for His Son? that the Father would glorify His Son in the earth 
by growing and multiplying the word of God, what does this do? It grows and multiplies the honor of Christ in the earth and by placing the son's enemies under his feet. So today's sermon, be wise, O kings, lest you perish in the way. We'll see Herod's evil response to Peter's deliverance. We'll see the, uh, another plot line intersects here by God's providence with Tyre and Sidon making peace with Herod and this celebration and Herod's satanic pride on display. Angel of the Lord strikes him dead. You see the wrath of God on display. And then the word of God grew and multiplied. And of course, some questions to know and to love and obey God. Let's dig in. Verse 18 and 19, we see Herod's evil response to Peter's deliverance. Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Let's talk about this. So first, let's remember the context. And this is going to come into play It's probably already in your mind in our application. The people of God in Jerusalem have been doing what? Have they been holed up in their their, um, cellars, uh, safely uh, holding on to their hoarded goods? No, they have not. They know God protects his people. Where are they? They've been together in fervent, constant prayer for Peter. And God has delivered Peter by the hand of an angel. And Peter has shown himself freed to the church and gone off to a a safe place. Now, think of this. Surely, that church, as they were praying constantly, had prayed for Peter and for his deliverance. But we've already seen how they prayed and how they understood that Herod had set himself up against the Lord's anointed. Back in the earlier chapter, Acts chapter 4, when they looked to Psalm 2 to guide their prayers. So we we can have confidence that they also prayed against Herod and his evil attack on the Lord and his people. We can be confident they were calling on God to bring down Herod, to bring down this threat to his kingdom's advancement. Perhaps the soldiers have been placed into a sleep by God, only awakening as the sun rose. So we don't really know kind of how long this kind of thing that that the Lord did to the, to the soldiers. We don't really know exactly how long it lasted or exactly what was going on, but it talks about as soon as the sun came up. Their slumber fades and their nightmare begins. Peter's gone. They're frantic. They know what's coming. Their frantic search yields no answers. Herod also searches for Peter, also finding no answers. The suggestion here is a, a house-to-house search. Even after hearing the 16 guards tell him a coherent story of Peter's mysterious vanishing, Herod refuses to consider his own peril. He refuses to consider. He he knew. He had heard the stories of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. He had heard of the miracles and the workings of the Lord Jesus Christ. He refused to submit himself and he did not consider his own peril. He digs in against the Lord and his anointed even more. And 16 soldiers are executed by his command. Now, it doesn't tell us that they are definitely executed. He commands their execution. So note some things here. Evil, brothers and sisters, evil political rulers will not submit themselves to cogent arguments. They are irrational in their pride and in their hubris as they set themselves up on par with God. Until they have been subdued spiritually within by God's spirit, they will not submit to even the most powerful 
and persuasive evidences and arguments. And this is true even for those who are Christians in places of political power. They can be blinded to reality and also must have the spiritual working of God within them to embrace rational thinking and leading. Next, note, it is very dangerous to be a soldier under political rulers who set themselves against the Lord Jesus Christ. It is very dangerous to be a soldier under political rulers who set themselves against the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an important life maxim. Amen. Next, none can find those whom God delivers and hides. None can find those whom God delivers and hides. Commentary says, in times of public danger, all believers have God for their hiding place, which is such a secret that there the ignorant world cannot find them. Such a strength that the impotent world cannot reach them. Next, Herod leaves Judea, and he goes back to his citadel at Caesarea. Now, our last experience in Acts at Caesarea, you probably remember it was at the home of Cornelius. So, really, no matter where Herod goes, he cannot escape the Lord's presence and power. Note this, wicked rulers cannot escape the Lord by fleeing to their man-made strong towers. They can surround themselves with what they believe to be impregnable fortresses and what they believe to be omnipotent intelligence. But they have yet to meet invincible. And they have yet to meet omniscient. And if they do not repent, they surely will. They fool themselves. They indeed set themselves up as God. Herod's exit from Judea marks the end of his persecution of the church in Judea and surely would have sorely disappointed those bloodthirsty Jews. Remember we talked about it? He was pleasing the Jews. He was building himself up in the eyes of these wealthy Jews. Note this, brothers and sisters, persecution begins and ends by the hand of the Lord. Begins and ends by the hand of the Lord according to his power and according to his timing. It shall not persist. It shall not begin one moment before, nor shall it persist one moment beyond his perfect design. And it is always according to his perfect design. Commentary says about Herod, he was vexed to the heart as a lion disappointed of his prey, and the more because he had so much raised the expectation of the people of the Jews concerning Peter, had told them how he would very shortly gratify them with the sight of Peter's head in a charger, which would oblige them as much as John the Baptist's did Herodias. It made him ashamed to be robbed of this boasting and to see himself, notwithstanding his confidence, disabled to make his words good. This is such a mortification to his proud spirit that he cannot bear to stay in Judea, but away he goes to Caesarea. But oh, his embarrassment has just begun. So what happens next? Tyre and Sidon make peace with Herod and bring about this key moment in the, in the history here. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord and having made Blastus, the king's personal aide, their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So here another plot line emerges and intersects. Isn't it beautiful how... Uh, the great author, the Lord, brings these things together. The conflict between Tyre and Sidon and Herod has come to an end. The people of Tyre and Sidon are under Herod's control because he supplies them with their food. 
So they befriend Herod's personal aide, Blastus, and they ask Herod for peace. Hunger has a way of making things happen. Commentary says, Tyre and Sidon were trading cities and had little land belonging to them, but were always supplied with corn from the land of Canaan. Now, if Herod should make a law to prohibit the exportation of corn to Tyre and Sidon, which they knew not but a man so revengeful as he might soon do, not caring how many were famished by it, their country would be undone, so that it was their interest to keep it, to keep in with him. Note this, brothers and sisters. Those who supply us our food have much control over us. Those who supply us our food have much control over us. Next, related to this, it is exceedingly unwise to allow tyrants to control our food source. Next. We see Herod's satanic pride, and it's satanic because he's setting himself up as God. The the sin of the devil. Verses 21 and 22. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. So he scheduled this. It's a day they set apart for this big celebration of peace. The people of Tyre and Sidon come to hear Herod on this day to honor him as their ruler. You may recall this is coastal area. Tyre and Sidon up north coming down the coast to Caesarea, which is also on the coast to the south. So there they are. They're all together. This big celebration, all the dignitaries from Tyre and Sidon, there before their king. They're eating a lot now, likely at this big party. Not so hungry anymore, or even not in fear of hunger anymore. Herod has clothed himself in his royal attire, and he set himself there upon his throne in front of them in this great royal town, Caesarea, which we've looked at before. And he goes on in his pomp to give them a royal oration. Now these people take their friendship aims to the highest level of flattery, or perhaps they meant it, worshiping Herod as a god. Not just as a man. Not just as a great man. But as a god. So note this, brothers and sisters. Statism, which is the idolatry of political rulers, the worship of political power, is the inevitable outcome of the people giving their lives into their ruler's hands. Food, security, things of this nature. When we entrust, when a people entrust their lives into the hands of their political rulers, which we should only entrust into the hands of God, it is inevitable that the worship, the idolatry of the state will occur. This is statism. It is the greatest idolatry of our day. Commentary says, the people applauded him. The people that had a dependence upon him and had benefit by his favor, they gave a shout. And this was what they shouted. It is the voice of a God and not of a man. God is great and good. And they thought such was Herod's greatness in his apparel and throne and such his goodness in forgiving them that he was worthy to be called no less than a God. And perhaps his speech was delivered with such an air of majesty and a mixture of clemency with it as affected the auditors thus. Or... It may be it was not from any real impression made upon their minds or any higher good thoughts they had indeed conceived of him, but how meanly soever they thought of him, they were resolved thus to curry favor with him and strengthen the new-made peace between him and them. Thus, great men are made an easy prey to flatterers if they lend an ear to them and encourage them. 
This is not only a great affront to God, giving that glory to others which is due to Him alone, but a great injury to those who are thus flattered, as it makes them forget themselves, and so puffs them up with pride that they are in the utmost danger possible of falling into the condemnation of the devil. So what happens next? The angel of the Lord strikes Herod dead. Verse 23. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. The one who held the power of sword and killed James is now brought before the one who has the power of worms and brings them upon him. He finds out about real power. The one who had imprisoned Peter is here imprisoned by worms and he cannot escape. The one who holds the power of the sword and the keys of death. Herod finds out who's really, who, who, who God really is. And it's not himself. Herod reaches the heights of satanic pride, setting himself up as an equal to God by receiving that worship which is rightfully given only to the one true God. This is blasphemy, brothers and sisters. It is wrong to worship those who are our political rulers. That is idolatry in our hearts if we do this. And it is wrong for our political rulers to receive that praise. And Herod did this, setting himself up as God. And the Lord, in his wrath, struck him. And he perished in the way. About Herod, these undue praises he took to himself, pleasing himself with them and priding himself in them. And this was his sin. We do not find that he had given any private orders to his confidants to begin such a shout or to put these words into the mouths of the people, nor that he returned them thanks for the compliment and undertook to answer their opinion of him. He just did not give glory to God. He received this worship and said nothing and did nothing. But his fault was that he said nothing, did not rebuke their flattery, nor disown the title they had given him, nor give God the glory but he took it to himself, was very willing it should terminate in himself, and that he should be thought a God and have divine honors paid him. If the people will be deceived, let them. And it was worse in him who was a Jew and professed to believe in one God only than it was in the heathen emperors who had God's many and Lord's many. So what happens? Immediately, the wrath of the Lord is here kindled but a little. And the might of God is revealed. And the foolishness of those who rebel against God is vividly displayed before our eyes. Peter's angel delivered him from death. This angel brings Herod's death, striking him. And then the outcome is that he is brothers and sisters eaten by worms and dies. Note this. The Lord may at any time he so chooses instantaneously apply his wrath by way of miraculous intervention. Remember, that same power that instantaneously raised Jesus Christ up from the dead may quickly flow forth from the same fatherly heart to bring death upon those who vainly set themselves against his beloved. Son. This is the reality we live in, brothers and sisters. 
All those who vainly set themselves against the Son and who do not repent will face this in this life or the next. Commentary says, Immediately the angel of the Lord smote him by the order of Christ, for to him all judgment is committed, because he gave not God the glory, for God is jealous for his own honor and will be glorified upon those whom he is not glorified by. Do you hear that? Will be glorified upon those whom he is not glorified by. And he was eaten of worms above ground, and he gave up the ghost. Now he was reckoned with for vexing the church of Christ, killing James, and imprisoning Peter, and all the other mischiefs he had done. And bear in mind, it's in the context that the church had prayed. And they had prayed with understanding, and they had prayed according to the word of God. They understood the kingdom setting, and they had prayed. They had carried out their Christian calling to be priests of the living God as Christians. Note, note here, angels are sent to help those who are receiving salvation. Angels play a big part in this, and we should consider this. And sometimes that angelic aid comes, yes, when prison doors are opened, yes, but sometimes that aid comes when the Lord releases their majestic, angelic might upon blasphemous political rulers. Commentary says, For those ministering spirits are the ministers either of divine justice or of divine mercy, as God is pleased to employ them. The angel smote him with a sore disease just at that instant when he was strutting at the applauses of the people and adoring his own shadow. Thus the king of Tyre said in his pride, I am a God, I sit in the seat of God. And set his heart as the heart of God. But he shall be a man and no God. A weak mortal man in the hand of him that slayeth him. So, Herod here. Potent princes must know not only that God is omnipotent. But that angels also are greater in power and might than they are. The angel smote him because he gave not the glory to God. Now listen, angels are jealous for God's honor. Are they not jealous for the honor of Christ? And as soon as ever they have commission, they are ready to smite those that usurp His prerogatives and rob God of His honor. Next. Note this, brothers and sisters. God is able to bring death in such a way to abase even the proudest, strongest princes of this world. Be warned, O kings, those who may be listening this, to this recording later in the future. Be warned, O kings, Herod was eaten by worms even as he lived. Torment God's people, O kings, and you may be tormented by God himself. Commentary says, see how God delights not only to bring down proud men, but to bring them down in such a way as is most mortifying and pours most contempt upon them. Herod is not only destroyed, but destroyed by worms, that the pride of his glory may be effectually stained. This story of the death of Herod is particularly related by Josephus. Listen to this historical writing of Josephus about this episode. That Herod came down to Caesarea to celebrate a festival in honor of Caesar, that the second day of the, festi- that the, second day of the festival he went in the morning to the theater, clothed with that splendid robe mentioned before, that his flatterers saluted him as a god, 
begged that he would be propitious to them, that hitherto they had reverenced him as a man, but now they would confess to be in him something more excellent than a moral nature. That he did not refuse nor correct this impious flattery, so the historian expresses it, but presently after looking up, he saw an owl perched over his head and was at the same instant seized with the most violent pain in his bowels and gripes in his belly, which were exquisite from the very first, that he turned his eyes upon his friends and he said to this purpose, Now I, whom you call to God, and therefore immortal, must be proved a man and mortal. That his torture continued without intermission or the least abatement, and then he died in the 54th year of his age when he had been king for seven years. So the church of the living God had been crying out to the creator of all, the judge of the earth, for the glory and the honor of Jesus Christ. Been crying out by name, mentioning Pontius and Herod in Acts 4. And, and had come together at this time when James had been killed to please the Jews. When prison had held Peter in. And they were crying out to the living God. And we're seeing God, like in Revelation chapter 8, when the incense comes up and the power of God comes down in response to the prayers of his people. The next thing we see God doing in response to their prayers, verse 24, the word of God grew and multiplied. God's redemptive judgments when he places enemies under the feet of his son are also always associated with the growth of God's church, the going forth of the gospel, the impediment, this civil set of civil rulers who had set themselves up against the expansion of the kingdom of God, the impediment is removed and the gospel goes forth. See this connection? They believed they could set themselves up as a wall against the king of kings. They learned otherwise. The word of God grew and multiplied. See, the same love power of God the Father. Again, we have to step back and think of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in eternal, perfect relationship forever and ever before the world began. The eternally begotten Son of God ever under the fatherly love of the Father. The Father ever adoring His beloved Son ever seeking to honor His Son. The Son always seeking to honor the Father. The Spirit always seeking to honor the Son and the Father. And into this, in this moment of history, one would dare to try to stand between the Father and the Son. That took place on the cross. The Father and the Son agreed to that, never to occur again. So this same love power of God the Father that raised up Jesus Christ from the dead and enthroned him at the Father's right hand. And don't miss that. There's always a connection between the resurrection and the ascension and the enthronement. The same fatherly love that smote Herod low by worms is also here poured forth unto growth and multiplication of the word of God. When the word of God goes forth, the enemies of, of the Lord are placed under his feet. You, as a Christian, your flesh has been placed under the feet of Jesus Christ. Amen? 
When you believed the gospel, you were conquered. Your flesh was destroyed. You have been subdued. You have been placed under his feet, your old man. You've been brought into new life by his resurrection. The resurrected Christ who became a life-giving spirit has spoken by the spirit into your soul and now you live in him. Because he lives, you live. So God is pouring forth his love power at this point unto the growth, the multiplication of the word of God, which is an equal miracle. That word which lifts up and honors the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That word which lifts up and honors the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. All those who look to Christ and who are his prophets, and they speak of his name and of his glory in this earth, all institutions devoted to his glory, they are under this love power of the Father. And they will be promoted and strengthened and protected unto the success of the gospel. The Father will honor his beloved Son, the greatest institution of which in this earth is his church. The beloved bride of his beloved Son. The Father honored the Son in His resurrection. And the Father's resurrection love still pours forth as the Father is placing all the enemies of His Son under His holy feet. Persecution of the Lord's people will always bring forth the Lord's wrath upon His enemies and the Lord's power to grow His kingdom. With love comes hatred. Cannot be separated. With love comes hatred. What do I mean by this? Do you hate your own sin? It separates you from the Lord Jesus Christ when you sin. Do you hate that? Amen. When you see someone, dads, think of this, someone coming against your little baby. Some evil that someone would want to work against your little one. Yes, hatred comes forth because of love. God the Father pours forth His wrath on those who set themselves against his beloved son whom he loves with an everlasting love since before time began all the way back into eternity of eternities and forever and ever and we are in that love we are in that love commentary says after the death of James the word of God grew for the church the more it was afflicted the more it multiplied like Israel and Egypt The courage and comfort of the martyrs and God's owning them did more to invite people to Christianity than their sufferings did to deter them from it. After the death of Herod, the word of God gained ground. When such a persecutor was taken off by a dreadful judgment, many were thereby convinced that the cause of Christianity was doubtless the cause of Christ and therefore embraced it. And of course, we see the word of God growing and multiplying growing and being multiplied on display as we're now about to move into the missionary portion of the book of Acts. We can see this springboard out of persecution unto the missionary work in the book of Acts. So, some questions to know and to love and obey God. Praise be to God, amen. The Lord Jesus Christ is risen, brothers and sisters. He is alive and He reigns. The first enemy that God conquered, death, placed under the Lord Jesus Christ's feet, and He's the one that holds the key to death and to Hades. The Father's been placing the enemies of Christ under His feet. You and I were those enemies conquered in our salvation, in our redemption. Some do not repent, still conquered. 
Do you see the Father's great love for His Son? Bringing forth the Father's power to resurrect His Son. Consider that love. Especially in the light of the cross where the the Son had been left alone. Under the wrath of the Father. And had endured it. And you and I united in Christ our old man there on the cross in Him. Stand there at that cross with me for a moment. And behold your Savior alone. Suffering under the wrath of God. His Father. Split from His Father. Alone. And yet His faith did not fail. For the joy set before Him. His faith did not fail in all of His agonies. In all of his torments, which we can never understand, his faith did not fail. Think of Jesus Christ. Think of the heart of the Father when it came time to raise his son from the dead. So this same love, think of this love. Do you see that this same love that brought Jesus back from the dead is the same love that motivates the Father to place all of his son's enemies beneath his feet? It is the same love. Do you see the connection between Christ's resurrection and Christ's victorious reign? What is the connection? The Father's love. The Father's love. Ephesians 1, listen to verses 15 through 23. See if you, as you listen to this glorious description of the Father's work in Christ, you'll note particularly in verse 20, the connection. Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling. What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? And what is is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe? According to the working of His mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And Paul doesn't stop there. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The father loves the son, brothers and sisters. And he will see him honored in every way. And those who do not acknowledge him are in peril. And we can pray with this understanding. We can be like this first church. We can pray with this same understanding. And we should expect to see the same outcomes. In our own lifetime, maybe, maybe not. But the church of the living God, we shall see the Lord bring forth his hand against those who resist his kingdom. Psalm 2, and you'll see it again in verses 6 and 7, this connection between resurrection and reign, this connection between the victory over death and the victory over every other enemy because of the Father's love. Listen to this and hear the Father's love for His Son. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. 
The Lord shall hold them in derision. This is in contrast to His love and His honor towards His Son, the Anointed One. Then He shall speak to them in His wrath and distress them in His deep displeasure. Yet I have set my King on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Does anyone here remember what verse 7 is referencing? We're told that in Acts chapter 13. It's referencing the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This phrase, the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. In Acts chapter 13, that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Right next to, set my king on my holy hill. And now the father speaks to the son, ask of me, And I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. So the son is lifted up in his resurrection by the father. And the father will honor the son. And all who come between the father's honoring of the son are in peril. That's what today's text says to us. In very real peril. Especially if they do it like Herod did. Especially in the case of idolatry. Verse 10 through 12, here's the warning from which the title of the sermon comes. Now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judge of the, judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. So the Father has set His Son his king, on his holy hill of Zion. And he has said to him, you are my son. And the message from the prophet David to all the rulers of the earth, then, now, and forever, be wise, O kings. Be wise. Serve the the Lord. Kiss the son. Worship the anointed one. Do not cast his law aside. Love His law. Do His will trembling in your work as an elected official. And know that you will be blessed in doing this. Do not listen to the lies of the cancel culture. That's what our elected officials need to hear from us. Do not listen to the lies of the cancel culture. Listen to this word. Blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. That is the final word. Blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. This is the encouragement that we need to give to our elected officials. These are the kind of individuals that we want to pray to God to have in leadership over us. Now, I'm going to ask you to do something by way of application. I'm going to read Psalm 83 in closing. But as I do this, I want to ask you, can you pray a Psalm 83 prayer? Calling upon the love of the Father for His Son as you pray. Aware of the love of the Father for His Son as you pray. Could you write, would you write, a Psalm 83 prayer for our day? You know, this is going to take some research. You're going to have to ask yourself questions like, who are those forming a confederacy against God today? Where are the tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites and Moab and the Hagarites and Gebal and Ammon and Amalek and Philistia and Assyria? Where are they today? Who are the sons of Lot today? Who are the Siseras? Who are the Jabins? Who are the Orebs and the Zebs and the Zeba and the Zalmunas of our day? And will we pray with this understanding?
Psalm 83. A psalm, a psalm of Asaph. Do not keep silent, O God. Do not hold your peace and do not be still, O God. And I'm praying this as I'm reading this. And let us all be in prayer with these thoughts in our minds. Do not keep silent, O God. Do not hold your peace and do not be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make a tumult and those who hate you have lifted up their head. They have taken crafty counsel against your people and consulted together against your sheltered ones. They have, some, they have said, come and let us cut them off from being a nation that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. For they have consulted together with one consent. They form a confederacy against you, the tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagarites, Gebal, Ammon and Amalek, Philistia, with the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria also has joined with them. They have helped the children of Lot. Deal with them, O God, as with Midian, as with Sisera, as with Jabin at the brook Kishon, who perished at Endor, who became as refuse on the earth. O God, make their nobles like Oreb and like Zeb. Yes, Lord, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, let us take for ourselves the pastures of God for a possession. O my God, make them like the whirling dust, like the chaff before the wind, as the fire burns the wood, and as the flame sets the mountains on fire. So pursue them, O God, with your tempest, and frighten them with your storm. Fill their faces with shame, that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be confounded and dismayed forever, O God, who will not repent and serve you. Yes, let them be put to shame and perish, that they may know that you, you whose name alone is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.